From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. Jeff Holsclaw for Theology on Mission, and we are bringing some special episodes to you from our 2015 Missional Learning Commons, which was on the mission of preaching. Today, we have Tara Beth Leach uh, leading us in a conversation around pour over sermons brewing in the spirit. Tara Beth Leach lives in the northwest suburbs of Chicago with her husband Jeff and the rambunctious toddlers Caleb and Noah. She's a Nazarene pastor who is currently the director of women's ministry at Christ Church of Oakbrook. We hope you enjoy this. Two more will be coming out by the end of the week from the talks from Matt Tebby and from Mandy Smith. Please subscribe so that you don't miss any of those and we would love any reviews that you would want to give us. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoy. And I know we've prayed a couple times, but you make me nervous, so I'd like to pray again. Father, we thank you that we get to do this. We thank you that we get to gather together in your presence, that you are here among us, that you are speaking deeply into our hearts, that you are shaping us, that you are giving us a greater understanding of this thing that we get to do called proclamation and preaching. That we get to announce that Jesus is Lord. That we get to announce that the kingdom has come. Lord, I pray that you continue to stretch our minds, open our hearts. Help us to continue to grasp as much as we possibly can this mystical thing that is happening in and around us and among us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I could write a book on preaching bloopers, Uh, quite a hilarious book on preaching bloopers. I sometimes wonder why I am still preaching, considering a lot of the bloopers that have happened to me. Upon serving at Christ Church of Oakbrook, I served at a church in Naperville, Illinois, and the very first time that they invited me to preach, I stood before the congregation, and I have like this crazy habit of words getting mixed up in my mind and jumbled and twisted around, and I'll combine them. And and, and so when George Bush was around, um, I could really relate to him with the words that he would sometimes combine. I was like, I get him. I get him. And one of the first times I preached, I stood before the congregation, and in my brain I was thinking how wonderful it is to come together and worship as the body of Christ. And I was also thinking about how much I love the church and that it was my church that I was at. And and so I stood before everyone and I said, good morning, everyone. It's so good to come together and worship my body. (laughs) And then... Not long after that, I was invited to preach at an Ash Wednesday service, and I was 26 years old, and I was intensely nervous. 
And coming from the holiness tradition, liturgical services were very new to me. And I was at a church that did, they, they had two different venues under one building, which is very similar to where I serve now, a contemporary and then a liturgical. And, and so being invited to preach at an Ash Wednesday service was just terrifying to me because at this particular church that I was serving, this was one of the biggest deals all year long. And uh, so I was studying everything I could about Ash Wednesday, trying to kept, catch myself up on, on the liturgy around it. And these mic packs that they make, um, they're not made for women. Can I get an amen from the women in here? And so I had a robe on, and underneath I had a pencil skirt. And I connect, connected my mic pack to my pencil skirt in the back. And the, the, what I was supposed to do was stand up and do the imposition of the ashes, which I didn't know you were supposed to make them really small. You could tell who was in my line because the ashes were just mammoth. And, um, and so as I stood up to go do the imposition of ashes, I was to go do that, and then I was to go directly and preach about a 20-minute sermon. But as I stood up, the mic pack fell down my pencil skirt. And I didn't want to make a scene of it. You know, the rule in preaching is, you know, you're a swan on top, but, you know, you're paddling underneath. They don't know you're freaking out inside. I was totally freaking out, thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to pull up my mic pack that is now dragging on the ground like a tail through my pencil skirt and fix it? So I had a plan. So I crossed uh, the, the stage and with the mic pack dragging around me, just kind of thinking, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And so I go and I do the imposition of ashes, and I'm thinking the entire time, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? How am I going to fix this? And so I have this glass bowl in my hand, and as soon as I'm done doing the imposition of ashes, I think, okay, I'm going to go hide behind the organist, in between the organist and the choir. So I go and I hide behind him, and this organist was just really concerned that I was back there to, to do the imposition of ashes on him. And so as he's playing, he's like, no thank you, no thank you. And he just kept saying no thank you, and I'm like, I'm not here to do imposition of ashes on you. I'm trying to fix my mic pack. And so I have this glass bowl, and right below me was this air conditioning vent that was, that was like an F5 tornado. And so I have the glass bowl, and I'm trying to fix it. I'm like, I'm not here to do your imposition of ashes, and I'm trying to pull it up. And this glass bowl of black ash just fell down onto the ground in the F5 tornado air conditioning vent and just whipped up into my face. <laughs> There was uh, my husband, my sweet husband, who usually often prays for me in situations like this because it's, it's really common. Uh, he was, this was a large sanctuary of about 1,000 people in there, and he was standing in the back. And he said, I didn't know what happened. I just heard a crash and a black plume of ash in the air, and I could just feel all in my face. And I thought, I'm supposed to go preach now. And so I'm trying to wipe off my ash, and I fix it, and I go up there, and I preached, I think, about a 20-minute sermon, and I sat down next to all the pastors who had seen everything, and of course, they were just having a blast with what happened, and uh, I had no idea what I preached. And I remember I'm standing at the back, and some people are like, what just happened? And some people are like, wow, but that message was really, that was just an incredible message. I just, that really spoke to me. And I was thinking, I have no idea of what I just preached to you. And I open with that story as an icebreaker, because sometimes icebreaking stories help me get through the nerves a little bit. But also, maybe you can relate to an experience like that, where you preach a sermon, and you're like, wow, what just happened I don't know how that happened. Almost a supernatural experience where you preach and you sit down and you think, 
that wasn't me. There was something beyond. There was something much bigger. There was something much more mystical, if you will. There was something much deeper happening there than just me giving a really great, awesome rhetorical speech. And I can't tell you how many times that has happened to me, but it's taken me years to name what was going on. I uh, studied ministry in Olivet, at Olivet Nazarene University and then at Northern Seminary with these amazing professors. And, but when I first took my preaching class, it was all about expository preaching. You start with the text, start with the text, start with the text, start with the text. And that was what we talked about. There was little to no conversation about the Spirit, of what the Holy Spirit was doing. It was, you start with the text, and it was so methodical. You know, three steps to preparing a sermon, which was good, and served me well. And I grew in those classes, and I, I can take so many positive things from it. But it wasn't till later on in ministry, and even serving at Northern Seminary, that and, and devouring scholars like Gordon Fee and being around people like Cherith uh, Nor Fee Nordling, uh, beginning to recognize what the Spirit was doing in the preaching process. James Forbes says this. He says, the person who preaches the gospel makes a statement about the Holy Spirit just by entering the pulpit. The preaching event itself, without reference to specific texts and themes, is a living, breathing, flesh and blood expression of the Holy Spirit. And so I think we could all agree that it is the Spirit that inspired the Scriptures, that it is the Spirit that works in the congregation and among the people to shape, form, transform, mold their hearts. It is a Spirit who speaks through the teacher and the preacher, therefore, Preaching is not a demonstration of our power. It's not a demonstration of our eloquence. It's not a demonstration about how good of stories or how creative the preacher is, but it is a demonstration of the spirit of the living God within and among us. And so as I was thinking about what to talk about with all of you the Spirit just kept bringing me back to what does it mean to preach in the Spirit and what is Spirit-led preaching? I'm really thankful that this is a conversation because really I'm still working through a lot of these ideas and trying to understand and trying to grasp what it is. And so I'm a little bit of a coffee nerd. And Several years ago, I was trying to understand and research what the best coffee maker was. And so I went through all these different things, you know, the kind that, that grinds the beans for you, and, and then it makes it. And I was surrounded by people who were way more bigger, like bigger coffee nerds than I was. And so they said, you know, you, you've got to have a pour over. You, pour over is the only way. It's the best way. Uh, it's the best way to get the strongest flavor out of the beans. And so I tried pour over, um, but my thing is I wake up in the morning and I want that coffee ready, like on the counter, you know, like timer, because has anybody ever done pour over before? It takes forever. 
it takes a century. You have to grind the beans, then you have to measure them, then you have to weigh them. It's a really long process, and then you're sitting there, and if you're like I am in the morning, who just like doesn't want to talk to anyone until you've had your coffee, you watch it, and you just watch the water soak in the beans, and then it just drips out ever so slowly, and you know, like 10 hours later, you have your coffee. And so when I was thinking about the process of preaching, I was thinking, we, we're like that. We want the easy method. We want it ready. We want it ready to go you know, right away without brewing and without being present and tending to the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing in our community and around us, in the text that we're reading, in, in events. And so there's something about that process of just brewing and being still and being attentive to the Spirit. And it's taken me years to be able to name that and to be aware of what was happening within the preaching experience. And so I've always been drawn to, which all of us here are preachers, so this is a very basic text, but with what happens in the bigger picture of what is happening within the Apostle Peter. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then skipping all the way down to verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. So I'm always drawn by just looking at the life of Peter, what exactly was happening. Peter was the one in the Gospels who often said just a lot of really ridiculous things. He rarely got it, it seemed like. he, uh, and, and when he did get it, it was exciting. But oftentimes, he didn't always get it right. And we see almost just this different character as soon as Pentecost happens, as soon as there is just this groundswell, this eschatological happening in and around the people. And for the first time, it seems like Peter really got it right. Or maybe we should say something right happened within Peter. There was a permeating revelation. And so Peter's sermon... uh, plays really just this paradigmatic role within the book of Acts. You know, at the beginning of Acts, we see um, the spirit-empowered witness to the risen Jesus proclaimed and in his sermon. And we see this just very different person. It's almost like when you, you get to Peter's sermon, you're like, either this is someone, this is a different Peter, or just something just incredible was happening within his life, for him to just get it up and, for the first time, really just get it right. Maybe today we would say he nailed it, or something within was happening. His sermon goes on beyond just a really great speech. It goes beyond really great oratory skills or a great illustration. But Peter's sermon is empowered by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
and they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. I think that right there tells us that something much more profound was happening because these people who were once angry and dissonant and scornful, they were changed. Their posture was broken. Their posture was changed. And then again, we also see in the early church that worship, the gathering, and preaching was Holy Spirit-inspired. Missing all my slides. Sorry about that. In Colossians 3.16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs for the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And then again in Ephesians 5.19, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Conversation about the Holy Spirit was so commonplace among the early church, and I love the way that Gordon Fee always says it. He always says that the Holy Spirit was an experienced reality among the believers of the early church. It was an experienced reality among the believers of the early church. The early church saw the okay, I'm lost on my slides, but the early church saw the Spirit playing a leading role in the gathering. It inspired them. It led them. I love what David Fitch said just a few minutes ago. He said, liturgy starts when we all say, you know, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. We should do this. And I think the early church would say, yeah, that was that's Spirit-inspired. We are leaning into the empowering presence of the Spirit to give us a creative imagination for the world around us, uh, to give us a creative imagination. And so, and then again, I know a lot of us, I'm seeing some themes here, are pointing to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul's testimony, again, he points to the Spirit within the proclamation of the good news. And he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you in the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And I know that this is a passage that is looked at time and time again. But neither rhetorical mastery or eloquence had caused the Corinthians' faith to be changed. Great speaking, great stories didn't cause heart transformation. It didn't cause for them to turn a new direction. But instead, it was the work of the Spirit that seized the Corinthians and made them God's people. His preaching and teaching was laced with the Spirit. So he therefore boasted in his weakness so that the Spirit can work. When I read that text, I can relate. For me, as a young woman called into ministry at the age of 16 in a very fundamentalist organization, I received a lot of really confusing messages. I had just a really 
what we would call a mystical calling experience. I mean, just something incredible happened. And it was a surrender. It was, okay, Lord, I have no idea what this means, but you have me, you have all of me, you have everything. I'm just trusting that you will lead the way. And then different male mentors telling me that I could be in ministry if a man didn't step up, that, that maybe uh, if men didn't accept their calling, then maybe God would call you. Or you know, being told that I could be in ministry as long as I didn't preach and just being very confused and not even seeing a woman preach until my 20s. And so when I began preaching, in fact, I've often said I think that I might have been the first woman I've ever heard preach. When I heard my own voice, it just was like, is that how it's supposed to sound? Should I be lowering my voice? And just being, you know, really confused about how I preach, you know, as God has created me. And I still feel like I'm learning what that means and trying to live into that and trying to understand what it means that I'm a woman and a preacher. And I'm still wrestling through all of that. But when I first began preaching, I preached with just intense fear and trembling. Because I was very confused and very just not sure what it meant. And so, and insecure. And now I'm able to name some of those insecurities and understand that some of these insecurities that I was dealing with were insecurities that women go through. But it was in my weakness and in my extreme insecurities that every time I would stand behind the pulpit, something incredible would happen. And I would step back and I would say, Whoa, that wasn't me. And so I think we can all agree that the task of preaching, the task of preaching is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's pointless without the empowering presence of the Spirit. If we intend to preach the daunting and mysterious gospel of Jesus Christ, we need all the power that is available to us. And not to state the obvious, because I I assume this is all obvious to us, but the Spirit is the essential ingredient to the process of preaching. And so some of you might be thinking, yeah, 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 Terabeth, what else is new? This This is what it means to be Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. It's distinctly a Christian experience to be led and to be filled by the Spirit. But I would like to surface a quote by scholar Gordon Fee to kind of guide our discussion. Gordon Fee says this, I think it is fair to note that if there is one thing that differentiates the early church from its 20th century counterpart, it is in the level of awareness and experience of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Ask any number of people today from all sectors of Christendom to define or describe Christian conversion or Christian life. And the most noticeable feature of that definition would be its general lack of emphasis on the active, dynamic role of the Spirit. It is precisely opposite in the New Testament. The Spirit is no mere addendum. No, he is a sine qua non, the essential ingredient of the Christian life. Nor is he a mere datum of theology. Rather, he is experienced as powerfully present in their lives. Whatever else may be said of the early church, they were first and foremost people of the Spirit. 
And also in his book, Christian Spirituality, Wolf Hart Ponenberg notes that in the death of God generation, there was a philosophical and theological statement of the lost sense of the spirit perception. But what we now have is an actual existential leaving out of the fact that God's presence in the world, active in form of spirit, is not a normal perception for most of us today. And finally, Gordon Fee, he notes that although the church has rightly kept its emphasis on the life, the death, the resurrection of King Jesus, we are less sure about the Holy Spirit. Despite the affirmations, he said, in our creeds, in our hymns, and in the lip service paid to the Spirit in our most occasional conversations, the Spirit has been largely marginalized, both in the halls of the learning and the life of the church and as a community of faith. And so I pose this question. Has the Holy Spirit been marginalized in the process of preaching or behind the pulpit or in the preparation process? And I think I need to hit the gas pedal real quick. But, and I also want to pose this question. Are we Holy Spirit shy? Because when we talk about being inspired and being led by the Holy Spirit, it feels vulnerable. It feels really mystical. It's, we can't put our finger in it. We have no proof. We can't point to a specific text always. Is it too personal? Are we showing too much of ourselves, wearing our hearts on a sleeve, or are there other barriers? And are we surprised when the Holy Spirit does move? We walk away sometimes from the gathering after a sermon, we're like, whoa, my mind was just blown, the Holy Spirit just moved. And are we surprised when it happens? And so as a millennial, I hate anything that is three easy steps formulas or methods, and especially when it comes to something so profound, so mystical, and as mysterious as spirit-led preaching. So there really is no method to spirit-led preaching, but I think there is a recognition, there's a mindset and a posture. Because I think we can agree that the spirit is in the process, but are we aware? Are we recognizing and are we aware of the posture? So I just want to go through these really quick. Number one, recognize that preaching is a ministry of the Spirit, not our own superhuman ministry. Recognizing and being in this posture that we are linking into the creative and missional imagination. God. Recognize that Spirit-filled preaching is vulnerable and open to the Spirit and congregation, and we are totally unguarded and vulnerable. Recognize that the Spirit's power and presence is what ensures the transformation of the community, not the sermon itself. Recognize that amazing sermons would be unexplainable apart from the Spirit. Next, Spirit-led preaching. We recognize that as David Fitch proclaimed that Jesus is Lord and that the Spirit is at work among us, therefore we can let, let go of control of the gathering, let go of control of the process, that we don't have to just land a knockout punch sermon, that the Spirit works in humility and human weakness before the congregation. And next, take the pressure off ourselves. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I could relate to something Mandy said on Facebook not too long ago, because I think this every week. I always wonder, she said, if this is going to be the week that I don't have a sermon. Something along those lines. Anytime I write anything, I think, is this going to be the time that I 
will stand before the congregation without a sermon or without a teaching. Recognize that our sermons are spirit-empowered. And next, recognize that it's a spirit that cuts to the listener's heart, not the perfect sermon illustration. And next, recognize that preaching is an act of surrender. Therefore, preaching is not warding over the people what we have to tell them or trying to control the outcome of, of where we want the church to head or where we want the congregation to go, but it is instead recognizing that Jesus is king and that it is the spirit that propels the congregation. And finally, spirit-filled preaching is with and for the body not above the body. Let me close with a quick illustration. When I was 16 years old, I, had, well, I was a swimmer my whole life, and I attended a swim camp in New Mexico outside of Albuquerque with Tom Jager. And before there was Michael Phelps, it was actually Tom Jager, who was uh, known as the bullet. And I went to his swim camp for two weeks. And swim practice after swim practice, I was the last one, the slowest one there. And one day, Tom said, you know, we're not going to swim today. We're actually going to hike a mountain. And we were in this totally new um, elevation, so I was really struggling with the air and with my breathing. And so as we're climbing the mountain, just like the swim practices, I was the last one in line. I was really struggling. And just kept stopping every few minutes as I was hyperventilating and couldn't breathe, hyperventilating and couldn't breathe. And finally, I just totally gave up. I, I threw in the towel. I thought, this is, you know, this is pointless. I can't keep up with the team. I can't keep up with the swimmers. I'm going to give up. I, I threw in the towel, and I sat on a rock and just started to cry. And I heard footsteps coming towards me, thinking it was probably just another one of my teammates. But as I looked up, I saw six-foot-six Tom Jager making his way down the mountain. And he got down on his knees to where I was on the rock. He said, Tara Beth, I believe in you. And we're going to do this together. And I'm going to show you the way. And I'm not going to leave you behind. Whereas I sometimes think that we think of preaching as shouting to the team, come up with me and go to the top. But instead, I love this image of thinking that we are with and among the congregation, and we're saying, come on, I'm with you. I'm wrestling through this, but I'm also proclaiming that I know that the top is just around the corner, that it's right there, that it's among us, that the Spirit is here. And we're going to walk together, and I'm going to show you the way. Spirit-led preaching is in and among the people. And so I just want to ask that we trust the process then. I think sometimes when we walk away from the sermon and we just think, what happened? I think it's because there was a process happening in our heart, in our minds. And, and sometimes we just want to open our journals or open our computers and just write. But instead, trust the process of being attentive, of tending to the presence of the Spirit that when we're with our children, maybe all of a sudden a conception of a sermon is going to happen out of nowhere and we don't even realize it or it's going to wake us up at two in the morning. Pay attention to those moments and trust the process. 